0: Welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about linear narratives. How are games' stories traditionally told? In what ways do narrative structures shape a game's world? How many times will I bring up Max Payne in this discussion? To help me find out, as a man whose entire life has been a straight line leading directly to this moment, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Stephen. Yes, sir. It is our one-year
1: anniversary for our podcast. It
0: is. Happy C- anniversary. Happy anniversary. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I was congratulating myself there.
1: No, I mean, that's all we do here <laughs> is like pat ourselves on the back.
0: Yeah. One year, man, it, it, uh, it simultaneously flew by and also seemed to take forever. I don't know how that's physically possible.
1: Well, when we got to 10, I was like, yeah, we should celebrate. And then it just kind of kept going. So um, it went quickly. I'm happy that we're continuing to do this a year later and still getting to uh, meet and talk about cool things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super proud of, of what we've accomplished.
0: And of course, one of my favorite one of my favorite parts about doing this show is the amazing guests that we've been able to get. And we have a another amazing guest with us today. She's Steven. a former scriptwriter at Ubisoft. Wait, wait, what is it, Jared? I was about to introduce our guest. What do you got? Who who do we have today? Oh, thank, thanks, <laughs> thanks,
1: thanks. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I would I would throw it to you as a, as a new format. A year
0: a year into this, and we're still just absolutely yeah, terrible. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, some things never change.
0: Jared, our guest today, she's a former scriptwriter at Ubisoft. She's the co-host on The Sexiest Podcast, and now she's a freelance writer and narrative consultant. Please welcome Kim Belair. Kim, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey,
2: uh, I'm pretty good. I wasn't sure if I had to like be quiet before you guys
0: introduced <laughs> we, me. And we so insist I was our like, guests oh, remain completely silent the entire time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, please, please stay on mute. <laughs> Do not congratulate us. This, this isn't your well, time. Thank you,
0: Kim. Thank you uh and thank you for being here it, it was it's amazing to get you on the show and finally get to talk with you
2: yeah ditto it's uh it, it's it's something we missed each other at gdc so i'm very i happy know to it was and that was
0: heartbreaking uh because every time like you were available we were at a, a talk or a panel and every time we were available you were taking important meetings and it just we just couldn't make it work it was i felt sad
2: that's that's the thing with GDC I mean it's my first GDC and I went in going like I'm not going to see anybody what am I going to do like I'm just some rando who's not going to be able to talk to any people there and I'm not going. I'm going to spend all the time in my hotel room eating pizza which I still got to do but I just didn't anticipate that I would actually be busy all the time and that people would be so inviting and that I would have so many like engagements it was really really great
0: well yeah that's I mean that's fantastic your first gdc how is how is this your first gdc didn't you work at ubisoft
2: i did but i don't think i was ever in a position where it was like imperative that i take i don't know i guess it wasn't yeah it was it was never something that i i thought i would be a part of and i did have like this idea that it was kind of for the cool kids <laughs> like oh you get to go to gdc and that's like really really cool well, i don't know who let and, me and
0: jared in then
2: <laughs> well see that's how you know you're cool it's that you it's that you don't know you're cool and so, but I I would, I would just see people going to GC and I thought like game developers conference. Well, I mean, I work in games, but am I a game developer? It's, it's imposter syndrome uh, all the way.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, we just do a dumb little podcast and, uh, and we were walking around there. I'm like, there's like some truly talented people in this building. And then there's Jared and I. Yeah. What are we
1: doing? Here?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I think the secret is that everyone kind of feels well, that I way. guess. Yeah. And, and anyone with, with any measure of success does and goes, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. And I've tricked everyone into thinking I'm
0: <laughs> That's
1: uh, Yeah, that's the, our, that's that's the our struggle. That's, that's, that is something that I yeah. that I definitely feel in pretty much all of my work every day. So I know how you feel there. 100%. Well, Kim, how did you get your start at Ubisoft? It's
2: a very boring story in that it was LinkedIn.
1: All right. Um, I like it. Short and sweet. <laughs> so all you kids yeah. out there who are looking to get <laughs> into game have, design, LinkedIn.
2: I got a degree in marketing. And so I worked in social media and branding for a good many years and also did a ton of copywriting. Um, I wrote a lot of fiction, comics, stuff that appeared here and there. So I've always written and done creative writing and stuff and been very, very invested in video games. But literally one day I got a LinkedIn message going, hey, do you wanna come on board uh, at Ubisoft as a community developer? And I said, yes, and th- that was it. It was a sudden and unexpected start. I had never thought about actually working in games, but there I was.
0: Now. You were, you were into games uh, before you worked at Ubisoft. Were there any games that you were playing and enjoying and then later got to work on a franchise or anything like that?
2: Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, when I got a PS3, I had been kind of Nintendo loyal until PS3, and I played, um, I watched the trailer actually for Assassin's Creed Revelations, and I had never touched an Assassin's Creed game until that point. But I thought that trailer was so good. It had like um, a wood kid track. It was like Ezio and the the Spectre of Altair. And I thought, whatever this game's about, I want in. So I ended up getting Assassin's Creed 1, 2, Revelations, uh, Brotherhood, and 3, and just like going through them. It's a bit and, of a time uh, commitment. On, it, it was more of a time commitment than I expected, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And I ended up, my first official writing gig was on Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Right on. Yeah, so that was that was kind of cool, but it was honestly something I had never thought to write in or in video games. I never thought I would actually get into that path.
0: Well, that's cool that you get to work on the Assassin's Creed games. How was it transitioning from doing the writing you were doing before into writing for video games? Was it a, a difficult transition to doing that style of writing, or did it did it fit pretty naturally?
2: Uh, it fit pretty naturally because a lot of the writing that I was doing. I'm a a big fan of like straight up prose and of just kind of writing a a story. But I also would do a lot of things that were a little bit more like um, epistolary work, which is to say like Dracula, for example, is an epistolary novel or the Earthbound Player's Guide is told in an epistolary way where it's um, bits of ephemera like newspaper clippings, um, Mm. letters, journal entries, things like that, that kind of compose a story. So there's always an element of the reader or the audience having to piece together uh, certain things. And in that way, you can almost kind of tell a story that is branching or that can surprise the reader or is, or changes depending on what they read first. I had also, you know, kind of done more ARG style stuff online um, and put up some little like mysteries and things like that, things that you kind of had to guide yourself through. Or one time, my co-writer and best friend and I, we designed like a murder mystery party. Nice. That took place. Yeah, it took place in the streets of Montreal. So that the the birthday girl who was who this party was for had to go to different locations and meet different characters played by us and her other friends.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. And so
2: in that way, yeah, it was kind of like that. Those skills kind of translate into writing, say like an open world scenario or a branching narrative because you just have to kind of be on your toes.
0: Are you, now I have I have to ask this: Are you a D and D player at all?
2: So, I started listening to the adventure zone like last oh, right year, right on, and that finally made me go from someone who had never touched d and d to a dungeon master
1: nice right. and <laughs>
2: right on. it's yeah, and being a dungeon master also it's the it's very much the same skill set, and to me it's it's partially in games writing it's partially being a dungeon master, partially just being a a writer and then also just being a copywriter with endless reserves of energy to mm-hmm. write a ton of stuff.
0: Why did you end up leaving Ubisoft uh, and transitioning into doing the the freelance thing?
2: So I say this with all the love in the world for everybody at Ubisoft and for with an immense amount of gratitude for the time that I spent there and the learnings that I got there and my ability to transition from a community developer role to a writer role. So I worked on Assassin's Creed and For Honor and a little tiny little scrap of Far Cry 4 and a little bit of um, additional content for some other stuff. But the game that I spent the longest time on was a a project that ended up getting cancelled. I was working on this with um, Dean Evans, who he's the guy who did Blood Dragon.
0: Mm, Right on.
2: And he's already talked about the cancellation of this project, so I I feel free to to say it. And that was a project that I was really passionate about and took a lot of the creativity that I had for about two years. And it's not that I think like, oh, no, I'm bitter that it got cancelled or this. But it's like, it was a lot of investment and it made me realize the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell and the kinds of stories that I hope to tell. And I realized that that's something that I want to look at in projects that are a little bit smaller, a little bit more about empathy and emotions and growth and self-actualization. And that's not to say that Ubisoft isn't telling those amazing stories. It's that I was getting some offers to work on some smaller projects or like to take part in something else. And of course, you can't do that when you're also working on on in AAA. You know, it's it's hard to balance. So I thought at this point in my life, I can probably afford to take that leap and just try working on other stuff. And I would happily work with Ubisoft again. It was really, really great, my time there. And right now I just have to kind of take this journey myself, I guess, and see what else I can do and, and get back to, I think, just pure writing of stories and characters and that kind of depth that I wasn't able to do on a larger team.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, I got that. I mean, how has it been going back to, or going to being freelance? Do you feel like you are able to express yourself in those, in those ways um, more often you, than you were getting the chance at? at absolutely.
2: Ubisoft? And that's just the nature, I think, of smaller teams of different kinds of projects. And uh, when you're in AAA, it's weird because you have all the money, right? Like they're, they, they're funded. They, this, these games are going to come out. They're mm-hmm. sure things. But because you also have so many stakeholders and so many reasons to succeed and so many needs to succeed, you actually can't be as experimental as you'd like. And the team that you build has to be big. So everyone gets a little part of something to make sure that it comes out. And so there's not a lot of room to go, well, hold on, let's take a step back and, and retool this. So even though you have the resources, you don't necessarily have the ability to be as dynamic. So that, that was it. And being freelance now, I've been able to kind of pick and choose what I'd like to work on. And I should mention, I I did not take this too bravely. I didn't do, I didn't do this leap from AAA to freelance, you know, without anything lined up. Mm-hmm. And so I've been very fortunate to be able to kind of collaborate with some people who I'm really passionate about collaborating with and also get paid in the process. So It's been very, very good.
0: Very nice. Is there anything that you can, any projects that you can tell us about, even if like vaguely, I know you're probably under NDA uh, on a lot of this stuff, but is there, is there something like a, something specific that you're working on that has you excited, even if it's just in very general terms?
2: Uh yes, um two things actually. One of which um is uh an indie game that is going to deal a lot with the relationships between characters and even though it's kind of like it's an action title, what I'm able to bring to it and what I was asked to bring to it was a sense of character depth. And so that's something that I'm really excited to bring to the table because it's not it's very rare for me to get an opportunity to work on something that is a little bit of, little bit of action, a little bit of kind of what you expect from, you know, what the average person goes, oh, you, play, you write video games? There's a lot of fighting or mm-hmm. conflict in that. But also kind of be able to say, okay, no, this is actually going to be about building relationships as well. So that's kind of exciting. And then on the other side, um, it's a narrative consultant position where my job is working with a lot of different people making different kinds of media within a single IP. And what my job is, is to maintain consistency, build the world, and then help people to create projects within that. And that's been really, really rewarding to kind of get my storytelling yeah. skills you back on track. To, because that's the gets thing. Oh yeah. my
0: God, that seems neat.
2: Yeah, it is very neat. It's very much like I, I compare it all the time to being a dungeon master because I'm not going to control all the stories being told in that, but I'm going to control the world and its variables. And the difference between. Just writing dialogue for a story that's already being told by someone else versus helping to tell that story that other people are going to write in is is really really cool and being able to do those things at once is a lot of fun.
0: Very neat. Where does where does uh, the sexiest podcast fit into all of this?
2: Uh, the sexiest podcast was something that we decided to do because it couldn't all be <laughs> it couldn't all be video games. It was my co writer slash best friend uh, Ariadne McGillivry we were sitting down. In this uh, in this bar one day with some of our friends from Ubisoft, and there was this taxidermy deer on the wall, and it was it was kind of, it had been stuffed and uh, designed in such a way that it kind of looked like it was smirking. Like it was a little bit yeah. and yeah, it was it was a little bit disconcerting. And we were talking about how like it's weird that that's kind of like a sexy stag, and one of our friends said like oh well I mean stags are like the sexiest animal.
0: It, it, and then it can't, another can be argued that that is in fact true.
2: <laughs> right? It's it's but it can because someone else came in and we said, "Hey, quick, sexiest animal." And he said, "Oh, black panther, done." <laughs> and we realized that when it comes to talking about people's own sexual preferences, people's own proclivities, the things that they're into, they're very reticent to talk about them. No one really wants to go like, oh yeah, this is what I like in a man or woman or whoever I'm sleeping with. This is what I, I really find sexy. But when it comes to talking about things like animals or things like pasta shapes or mountain ranges or destinations or types of fruit, people are very quick with answers and you can kind of learn a lot from the things that they're willing to reveal oh, about absolutely. themselves.
0: I mean, listening listening to like, the the podcast, you get a sense of, the the values that people hold and the things that they find attractive even though the thing that they're talking about is like the sexiest breed of dog or cat or whatever you know whatever it is
2: exactly that's it but like we the first episode we ever did that it was not it was just like we did a pilot for ourselves it was sexiest mario kart character
0: oh (laughs) wait did that one ever get released i didn't see that one
2: no no it didn't oh my i demand at this
0: moment that that podcast come out at some point too sexy for the internet. Well, we're going to come Unrated. back.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. We are going to come back with um, an, with new episodes, and I'll try to fit that in there because the second that you ask someone, like, who's the sexiest, I don't know, say, like, Avenger, you kind of go like, okay, well, here are the ones. But if you ask, like, who's the sexiest America character, everybody's got, like, oh, it's this. Personally, I'm going with Bowser.
0: Whoa. <laughs> you really can tell a lot about someone from their answers. <laughs> I ju- y- you I, can. I just learned yeah. this. <laughs> In our last episode, we discussed that he, that Bowser has children. Is that, is that's baggage you're, you're okay with?
2: I'll take that on. Yeah. He's, right. <laughs> because I mean, he seems like a dedicated father. I remember when they did that, like um, parental controls video for the switch and it was Bowser and baby Bowser and trying to like negotiate baby Bowser's screen time. Mm. And at one point you see Bowser using the app to control it. And his, his lock screen is peach. <laughs> There's like a lot of storytelling in that. And yeah. I think like, plus, okay, devoted dad, very powerful. Mm-hmm. He, the thing is he, I mean, he's got a shell, but he chooses to wear those like very BDSM friendly, like bracelets and, <laughs> and, a, and a collar. So like he's telegraphing <laughs> a lot of stuff. So I, like I, plus he's very powerful. He's got his own castle. That's um,
1: true. Yeah. We I learn. Mean, yeah. He's, it, he's into what he's into. It's just. Uh,
2: well, exactly. You know. But we also learn in Super Mario RPG that he's got a sensitive side. He writes a haiku. Like, there's a lot going on.
0: <laughs> do you, I? I saw you tweeting about um, Mario RPG the other day, and I, I wonder, like, so you've got Barack Obama as a follower, which I'm, I'm super curious about how that, how that came around. Um, but do you ever, do you ever like worry, like, oh my God, the the president saw me tweeting about <laughs> how G, Gino should be in a in a Mario Kart game.
2: I think that. I mean, for one thing, I'm usually there's like three things that I'm usually tweeting about. Actually, no, four things it's Super Mario RPG, Earthbound, the Legacy of Kane series.
0: Whoa, that took a and, turn. <laughs> and,
2: and, and like how bad everything is. <laughs>
0: Which one of those? Which one out. of those did President Obama respond to when he followed you?
2: Well, see, I I choose to believe it's it's the Earthbound content because I think it was one of those times when like <laughs> he was probably like recent just becoming. I don't know how I made that list because one, I'm Canadian, and they were just following like so many people, and so it was like that whole campaign thing of like, all right, we're gonna follow everybody, and I made the list. I suspect it was numbers based, like maybe at a certain time, like anyone over fifteen hundred followers got a free follow from Barack Obama. But I, I choose to believe that he was like, these are some interesting, interesting views on Earthbound and why it should continue to exist.
1: <laughs> well, CD Projekt Red sent him a copy of The Witcher 3, so maybe he was like, I'm really into these RPGs. Maybe I should go back to Mario.
2: Super Mario RPG is one of the most underplayed games in the sense that everyone should play it.
0: I agree with that statement 100%. And I was so happy it got added onto the SNES Classic.
2: Yes, it so deserves it. And it's weird. Nothing in that game seems to have really made it out of that game. And it's to the detriment of all of Nintendo's work. That they don't have Mallow or Geno or like references. I mean, the whole thing was... And what I like about both It and Earthbound is that it did not care what it was writing about it was just like here we go here's the world take it or leave it
1: mm-hmm. it was almost like a piece of fan fiction that ended up being better than the rest they, of the lore I that mean, nintendo it, put it out kind
0: of was wasn't it it was i mean i know it was made by squaresoft or now i can't remember what their name was at the time i think it was squaresoft at the time
2: uh, it was squaresoft yeah
0: so i mean in a way it kind of was like they're like a separate team wrote wrote that game and made that game it was great. It was great. Uh, we could spend all day talking about Mario RPG. It's one of my favorite games. And I'm, I'm super glad to have found a, a fellow Mario RPG fan in you, Kim.
2: I legit want to like, sometimes I think I'm just going to offer people money to play Super Mario <laughs> RPG and just invite me over so I can experience it with them. Like
0: for the first time again, like through their eyes, By yeah. vicariously yeah, exactly. through another human being.
2: <laughs> yeah i i legit want to do that i just feel like here i will buy you a copy invite me to your house i will bring food because i just want to see you play this same with earthbound and both of them are so weird and good
0: wow I'm, now my mind is just like filled with mario rpg but we gotta <laughs> we gotta talk about uh linear narratives today we typically kick this off talking a little bit about the history so jared what is the history of linear narratives in video games
1: so i guess when we're we'll get into this in a definition part of this, but um, we're we're kind of talking about you know something that was written out with a with a purpose in mind, and one of those first early narratives was again on one of our uh, favorite consoles, the PDP-10 mainframe computer. Uh, Colossal Cave Adventure came out in 1976. We brought this up with Kevin Chin when we were talking about uh, endings in games but the the gist of it is it's a text-based adventure game where you get a description of your environment and then you type in, "I want to go south or go south," and um, you are in search of of treasure. And it's considered to be one of the first works of interactive fiction in the video game space uh, because it had a, a recognizable narrative. Um, I, I guess in the original version, the goal was to just find all the treasure and escape. It was really not accompanied by a narrative conclusion outside of just being satisfied that you were as rich as you could be out of the highest possible score, which I think was like 350 points. And, you know, they, a lot of people credit that game for inspiring other RPGs that came out, you know, in, in, vid- in the video game world down the line. And a lot of people might have considered it uh, a pre-rogue-like, if that's a word that I can coin. Or,
0: or beneath Apple Manor-like. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what which is what I call roguelikes ever since ever since that procedural generation episode that's what I call roguelikes is beneath apple Manor likes
1: it had a narrative, did it I mean the, I the, the narrative i don't is know that like here's how you got here and then. Now here's where you're going. It, it's, it didn't like wrap up, though. It didn't have a necessary beginning, middle, and end, right? There's no climactic exposition or climactic part of the, of the story where you're, everything changes and you're, and you're going down a new path. This, is, uh, this gets into something
0: that we've talked about on this show a lot, which is does the, the act of playing a game constitute story? Like there's, there's uh, w- one of the first games, uh, Space War. Space War? We've talked Space about we talked about it so many times. I should know. I should know. <laughs> Space war, you know, one of the very first video games ever made, and it's just ships uh, orbiting a star trying to shoot each other down. Is there is there a story there? Is there a narrative? I mean, obviously, it's communicating things through its des- you know through its design and through its gameplay. But at what point does a, a what I'll call a true narrative takes shape. And I guess maybe in, in this context, I'll throw it to you, Kim, because you've probably spent a lot more time thinking about this than I have, but where does, where does it become not just like the design of the game telling the story, but an actual crafted story?
2: Well, I think that it's the amount that we show to an audience, because I would say that whenever you used to buy those, like even super Nintendo or sorry, even Nintendo games. Um, Cause that's, that's where I started. So I'm sure that this, in fact, I know that this was taking place before that, but you would get these these little booklets, like these little manuals, that would come with it. And the first page was always here is some context for the game that you're playing, even if that game was Cubert.
0: What, it would was, at least what go. was the story of Cubert?
2: That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea um, what the story of Cubert was. All I I know was that I I read a Wikipedia article to find out more about like his swearing. And um, Kotaku at one point I think wrote a great piece about the history of swearing in video games, and Cubert I think was
0: because he
1: was, it's cause was he one of the early like, ones j-
2: like
0: jumbled letters. Is that what it was?
2: Yeah, like he uh, when he failed, he would just like have a bunch of little um, like an at symbol and a hashtag or that's right, um, yeah, yeah, and it was like oh. <laughs> He's swearing. And that was, that was <laughs> a big deal. It's very beginnings. adult. Yeah. But I mean, like, there's definitely a story there, you know, whenever you have characters' names. Coily is the snake. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know that the other ones have names, but um, I think that there is a story there. It might not have, you know, it's not a branching narrative. It's not a linear narrative per se. It's just a game, but there's a context to it. And whenever you're sitting there creating, you know, this huge and dense game Bible for something like the Assassin's Creed franchise, you're still creating the same thing for Qbert. It's just that one of them you get to express a little bit more.
0: Yeah. And I, and I wonder where that is. Like, I don't know that like direct expression versus the expression through gameplay. I've, I feel like I'm like stumbling through this because it's, it's, it's kind of difficult for me to put words to it, but I look at a game like Colossal Cave Adventure, a game where there's, there's not necessarily a story like, You're you're a treasure hunter and you're collecting treasure out of this cave, avoiding obstacles, and then you escape with the treasure. And that's more or less the story. And then I think about a game that came, uh, I think it was probably like eight years later, Zork, um, which was a very very similarly designed game, right? Like you're just given the explanation of where you are in the world and then you type out what you want to do, you know, like go south, go north, you know, open door, whatever it is. Um, but Zork, I would say, has a story. Like you're following along a narrative that uh, a path that was put there by the designers. Where Colossal Cave Adventure is that a story? Is that a narrative? I don't know. And this is where I kind of struggle. So maybe, maybe this is a good time for us to kind of jump into our like how we define linear narratives in games. So Kim, when I when I when I say linear narrative to you, what does that, like, evoke in you? What what does that bring to mind first?
2: Uh, the first thing I think of, and it's... I go right to the top shelf, and I go, like,
0: Uncharted. Okay, that's that's about where I'm at, too. Jared, how about you?
1: Call of Duty was the first thing that came to my mind, honestly, because it is, to me, one of the pillars of corridor shooters. And it is about as linear as an experience as you can get. There's, not a, there's no decision-making to happen in that. You just kind of are shooting your way down a hallway and... Exploring what's happening in the next cutscene, really—that's like the main goal of a of a Call of Duty campaign, anyways. And Kim, what is it about Uncharted that, that makes
0: that spring to your mind?
2: I think it's because, I mean, for one thing, it's even though it's it's an incredible, it's it's probably like my favorite game franchise. Um, there's nothing in your actions, no matter how you choose to take on these situations, that's going to fundamentally change who Nathan Drake is
0: in the story parts of the game right? Like in the, in the crafted story parts, because this, this gets back to something that I actually brought up in our, uh, character creator episode, which is the idea that like, if you decide to play Nathan Drake as like a shooty Nathan Drake, like, you know, going guns blazing and, and mow everyone down or like a stealthy Nathan Drake and sneak up on people and take them out. It does, does, does that in some way like change this idea of linear narrative or is linear narrative just those like story components that are like the, the pre-scripted parts of the game?
2: For me, the difference is that um, at the end, so at the end of uncharted two, I think it is um, Lazarovich says to Drake, how many men have you killed just today or something along those lines, right? I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. And it doesn't really matter how you've taken that on no matter what happens. The game knows how many people Drake has killed today, even if you got through it by running wildly to the checkpoint. Nothing about your actions is going to make him less, impe- like less reckless, less impetuous, less Nathan Drake. It's who he is no matter what. Something like Skyrim fundamentally changes the way that your character is. If you, decide to to take a certain path. If you decide to go all stealth, um, you're going to eventually get asked to do something else. You know, like that's going Mm -hmm. to change what your path is. And I had a a friend who decided to play Skyrim one day, for example, as without becoming the Dragonborn, to get as far as he could without ever actually pursuing those missions. And he was telling his own story in that. And because the character is so loosely defined, it's never going to come up. It's never going to affect the story of the world, but it is going to affect the way that he plays that character and who that character actually is.
0: Now, I when we were started talking about, started thinking about linear narratives, uh, it, of course, my weird brain goes towards thinking of like edge cases for the definitions of linear narratives. And Jared, I'll throw this one to you. Um, you. You and I are both big fans of Spec Ops The Line. That's a game that has a, what I would consider a pretty linear narrative. Like your experience as you play through that game is pretty, Is the same for everyone there's there's very little you can do to affect how you progress through the game until you get to the very final moment of that game and then there's like one decision you make that can lead to i think it's like three or four it's four different endings four different endings um but it's all made in that final moment does that count as a linear narrative in in your eyes
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that that game 100% had a agenda from the beginning. It, it knew the story that it wanted to tell. And the whole purpose of this of that story was that you didn't really have a choice in the end anyways. I think that they set out with that in mind because of the themes that they were telling. So yeah, I think it absolutely counts. Does I mean so? That's a game where I think
0: the point of that game uh, affects the player pretty much like halfway through or two thirds of the way through. Does does having the multiple endings somehow suggest that the ending of the game doesn't matter? Like it doesn't really matter what your choice is at the end. You're just gonna see a different cutscene.
1: I think that it matters in the sense of what you take away from the game. I guess if you only played the one ending, you're like, oh, that was really messed up. But then you go back and you either read or experience the other endings. You, you get a better sense of what they wanted you to n- take away from it. I think your interpretation of what they were trying to get across might change based on what ending you you end up with. But I, I, I do think that it was all leading up to, you know, a, a singular uh, vision that they had from the beginning.
2: Well, I think that's the big debate and what caused all the controversy with the mass effect three ending which was right. that you know throughout you're reassured that your choices are going to to change certain things it changes your appearance it changes the different things you can say or do to people the, the relationship that you have and then it all just converges on the same point where you're given two to three options of how to end this well
1: because they so heavily marketed it in that way is yes. like look at all the choices you can make and like your choices have consequences and I mean, it turned out it really didn't, and the end result was that all everything that you've done was for naught, and it wasn't the way that Spec Ops: The Line handled it, where that was the point. Exactly. Um, it, it 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 led you up until the very last second to believe that you were the one in charge, and it didn't really have the, that payoff that I think a lot of people expected based off of you know Bioware's messaging well, around the game. Well, let me, let me ask you this, Kim: and would you consider like Mass Effect one,
0: two, and three? To have a linear narrative, if even though there's like a lot of branching paths throughout those games, that they all kind of converge at one point at the very end, does that define a linear narrative?
2: Well, that's the question that I often ask. But because I, I, and the reason I think that we're dealing with that right now is because we're starting to actually see what an emergent or branching or truly branching narrative actually looks like. We're starting to see, okay, this is the amount of work we can do to actually start understanding what it means to change the course of a story, to change dialogue, rather than just have binary choices. And I think with Mass Effect, the endings are not, especially at the end, it, it took it from something that felt like it was a true branching narrative to something that you go, oh, we're all arriving at the same place. And it's more interesting to me when I can sit down with someone and say, what was your game like? Rather than just which ending did you choose?
0: I think that's. I think that might have been what was missing from a lot of people's experiences of that game. Because I think a lot of people uh, valued the destination over the journey. Maybe I don't know. I I, I don't know what what um, I guess maybe soured so many people on the the Mass Effect experience. Especially they were at between, the very end.
2: They were between a rock and a hard place for me. And honestly, I think that people just. You have to make a game when you're hitting the third in a franchise that people can play from the beginning, right? You have to be able to understand that some people haven't played one and two, and they're hopping in at three. So you have to make a complete experience. But in order to do that, they told a story that, I mean, in the beginning of it, you have that little boy, right? Who represents, I think, Shepard's inability to save those people. Hmm. You have that character who then is the one who will give you that choice at the end of it. I feel as though for people who had already been through so much with Shepard, introducing that late game and then having him be that final, that that final decision. I think a lot of people felt like the work that they had done for hours and hours and hours and the, the things that they had done and the people that they had met and the shepherd that they had become were kind of thrown away. And all of a sudden they were being guided on a far more linear path where it's like, hey, just so you know, you feel bad about this kid. You don't get to choose how you feel about him. It's Whereas it, in the previous games, you kind of got to.
0: It's interesting to me because I think that the the people that signed up for the Mass Effect ride, you know, when they signed up at one and played all the way through it to the very end, were expecting it to be, uh, sort of an open ended, open world kind of experience. And when at the very end it was like, uh, like, haha, it's actually a, a linear game. A lot of those people that had signed on for that experience maybe said like, oh, this, this what this wasn't what I was expecting when I started playing eight years ago or whatever however long the the franchise took place definitely
2: because you get so attached to your shepherd
0: but i think this, <laughs> i think this brings up the idea also that, that that people play games for different reasons i know certainly i do like i i am typically the kind of person who uh, prefers the more like open-ended open world experiences at least they're the games that kind of excite me more than um games that are I don't know, like the, the corridor shooters, which, you know, which, which I play, I, you know, I I've played my share of corridor shooters and, and from time to time, there's some that come out and, and are exciting to me, but I wonder if it's because it like attracted one particular market and then sort of, uh, flipped at the very end to, to appealing to the other market.
2: Yeah. That's something that happens a lot. A lot of people have a lot of trouble with that.
0: I've now sort of shown my hand in that. I, I, typically prefer open world games, but i I see that there is a lot of value in telling a a linear story because I, I think that that does provide a lot of strengths, a lot of um, opportunities for developers so Kim, as someone who who works in actually writing video games um what what are some of the like positive sides of having a linear narrative um, when you're in the design process for making a video game?
2: For one, it is easier to tell obviously it's easier to tell your story but the difficulty is that if you're going to take players on this journey that they don't really get much of a say in, you just have to make sure that they really like it. You have to make sure that they care about it. And so it's you ha- you end up with a lot more responsibility. But I think there's, it's absolutely true that you can have, a lot of the time we use linear versus open world, but I think that's kind of a false dichotomy.
0: I think so too. I might have something. misrepresented it by by phrasing it that way.
2: Oh, no, I, I, I didn't think that you had said it. I think that's just how a lot of people view it. They go like, oh, is this a linear game or is it an open world game? I went to a great talk actually at GDC by Josh Scherr, or Scherr, S-C-H-E-R-R, I believe, um, who did Uncharted, The Lost Legacy. And there's a great example of something that plays with the open world, but also has a linear narrative and the way that they explored that mm-hmm. and kept the the linear growth of that character of those two characters' relationship on track while still allowing players to choose the way that they interacted with the world. That to me is, it's, it's, it's both, you know, it's, it's not that, Oh, this is a linear game. This is open world game. They are mostly both assassins creed linear, 100% a linear game. Yeah. You can choose the order of things, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that, but they're still in a line. You know what I mean? You still run out of options. You still, you can't really choose the course of these characters lives.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, interesting in in games that are open world but also contain linear narratives right because the game sort of like opens up and expands but then has to converge at these like single points at these single moments where like okay you went off and did all these side quests but then eventually you have to return to the I guess sort of quote unquote the story of this game now Jared for you I I think you probably value the experience of uh, video games that tell linear stories um, more than me at least uh, that's how i sort of get the sense that you do what what are the, the the positive impacts of linear stories on your experience as someone playing the games
1: i mean you can of said it but i am a big fan of the idea of the Atur where metal gear solid series while it definitely has its ups and downs as far as storytelling goes hideo kojima is such a important part of that that you know you can see that throughout its entirety of 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 all of that writing and i think that having that one cohesive experience says a lot about that you know that that creator that artist Uh, and as games get bigger and the teams get bigger um, i can see why it's more important to have all of these side stories and like why open worlds all of the side stories, like I'll use The Witcher 3, for example, and the, the most famous side story, and that was the uh, the Bloody Baron. Um, some of those experiences can be better than the main quest. By having one vision, You there's a lot of value in being able to explore nuance of character and depth of character versus when a lot of people are writing for different circumstances that might be able to get a little bit muddied.
0: Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, when yep. when I'm thinking about the strengths of, of a linear story, um, w- one of the things it makes me think of is like how much detail you can put into those those story beats uh, because you know exactly where the player is going to be, you know exactly what their experience was going to be leading up to that point. And, and you know, it, it lets you add detail to the world. I, I think of a game like uh, like Bioshock Infinite, you know, a fairly linear game for the most part. But because they know that you're going to be at this point, at this moment, it lets them really flesh out what that world is like. You can stop and see people, you know, in, in shops, you can see people revolting, or you can see these like slice of life moments because they can spend a lot of time and effort crafting exactly that experience for you at exactly that time. And Kim, when you, when you and I had spoke, we spoke before we uh, did this recording you had you had talked about this a little bit about this idea of of linear narratives allowing for this detail and design. Um, is there anything you wanted to kind of add to to what I'm talking about here?
2: So earlier I mentioned that we had done this murder mystery party right mm-hmm. across um, Montreal, and that for sure is is kind of an open world game, right? We're sending we're sending our friend to different locations to speak to different characters to get different clues. It's all. In, like improvised. So we have that. But at the same time, we actually arranged it so that we had two of our characters appear in an alleyway making an illegal deal. And we we ensured that she would walk by that alleyway at the right time by working with another one of our friends so that she would witness that. And that to me, that's the Bioshock way, right? It's the, mm-hmm. you can explore this territory, but we are going to make sure that we're going to funnel you into this zone to see exactly what we want you to see.
0: Well, if if you'll allow me, Kim, because you had also sent me an article that you had written on this. And if, if you'll allow me to quote you to you.
2: <laughs> I hope it doesn't contradict anything I've said no, today. No,
0: no, no, it, it doesn't. But I think it brings up something interesting when we're talking about linear narratives. Uh, you said, we seem largely unable to marry the urgency and seriousness of a main story kicked off with action, danger, and overwhelming odds with an open world that prioritizes freedom and going at its own pace. In our quest to beat back linearity, we're meandering all over the map. Yes. Now, one of the things that that kind of brings up is this idea of this uh, uh, ludo narrative dissonance. I know it's like a yeah, it's like a one of the big buzzwords in in the gaming space. A lot of people like to throw that word around for people who aren't familiar. But it, it's sort of like the suggestion that uh, the story of the game contradicts with the gameplay of the game. Yeah. And you and you see open world games as as sort of having an issue with this in that it, uh, uh, well, uh, sorry, don't let me put words in your mouth here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but at least from that, that quote, it seemed that the suggestion was that open world games present this like dissonance where you're told to go, you know, your, your child's been kidnapped. You got to find your child, but first help this farmer pluck their turnips and, and exactly uh, because
2: um, there's no way that if you're going to have that character growth, that that guy who's looking for his child or that woman who's looking for her child is going to suddenly go to a farmer and go like, oh yeah, I've got time for this. Yeah.
0: So do you see linear narratives as a way to avoid this quote-unquote ludonarrative dissonance that, that occurs in video games?
2: To a point, because I think ludonarrative dissonance is one of the things that's most leveled at the Uncharted franchise for creating a, a hero who's lovable and ultimately not a, a, a monster, but who has killed thousands upon thousands of people in his lifetime, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So in that way, the linear narrative doesn't solve. He's the just so he's just narrative. so
0: dang charming, though. <laughs> he
2: is like at the end of it. Well, for me, the biggest part the
0: thing out, that I disagree out of here, with the you most. you knucklehead!
2: <laughs> yeah, everyone's always calling knucklehead. Well, that's yeah. For me, the thing I understand the least is whenever people treat him like like oh Drake, you're so ridiculous. I know. But like he will routinely like scale the side of a train. Jump from train to motorcycle to jeep back to train, killing people left and right, catching guns, throwing grenades, and no one's impressed. <laughs> that's, the, that's the bit that I have a problem with. Everyone always treats like it's ridiculous, and I think it's amazing. But I wish someone would be like, whoa, that's a, that's amazing what you just did. You're the most talented man in the world. <laughs> so just one time. like, But yeah, as far as linear is a cure for that, I don't think it is. But what I do think is is, and it's on the writers in this regard, or it's on the narrative leads in this regard. I think just lower the stakes a bit. You don't have to tell me that something is so urgent, and then immediately take me out of it. You can just tell me that this is a world I can explore, and I think that's why things like The Witcher work so well because, by its very nature, this is his job to go around and do stuff.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point. I. I get like, I kind of, I don't know, bristle might not be the right term. I I get like weird when I hear the term ludonarrative dissonance, because I think that video games by their very nature, at least the way that they're traditionally designed, all have a, a large degree of ludonarrative dissonance. Have you ever just like stood still in Call of Duty? I don't think so. Not, I mean, not on purpose. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, what happens? Oh, the,
0: the, well, the thing is, nothing happens, but the music keeps going. And then like the guys yelling, at you, "Come on, shoot them, go, go, go!" You know, like
1: it's like oh, to me yes. that creates
0: so like this this idea of like ludonarrative dissonance. I think is is funny in games, and and I think is uh, you know worth bringing up here in this discussion. This idea of like a uh, uh, crafted story a a story that's like going from start to finish and telling you about this character will always be undermined by the fact that the player themselves has some control over how that that character interacts in that world right like yes (laughs) like if you if you'd seen these people in real life going through these situations the fact that they you know were like scaling a wall that didn't end up going anywhere would seem ridiculous or that they you know stop to help a farmer would seem so ridiculous. I just...
2: No, I I absolutely agree. That's something that like... Um, spoilers for the end of The Last of Us. That's something that for me at the very end, when you bust into that room and the surgeons are there, I didn't know what to do in that moment because I thought, okay, well, I'm going to rescue her so I probably don't have to shoot these guys. So I spent like four minutes just walking around like bumping into doctors <laughs> and going like, oh, Sorry. Don't worry, not going to kill you. That would be that would be a lot. I'm just going to go ahead and try to get her off. And then I thought, oh, the prompt to pick her up off the table isn't loading. I wonder if I've done something wrong. Let me just meander over to this side and try to find it. And only after that did I realize, oh, it wants me to kill them. That moment was ruined for me personally, just because I was like, oh, I was not a good player in that moment. I was like, oh, crap, try to figure my way out of it. And so the weight of that kill, I think, was greatly reduced because i had to step out of the game and try to figure it out
1: there's a uh, a common theme in, in screenwriting and it's that let things happen to your characters let don't let your characters be the sole driving plot but let let the plot affect them in a certain way and i think a lot of that usually gets lost in open world video games because we're so concerned i guess as, a, as an industry uh we might be getting away from this now but with letting players Go anywhere and do anything, whereas in in real life you you can't just go anywhere and do anything. But I guess you technically can, but there but are consequences. Don't. Yeah, yeah, and like the consequences of the video game is usually like, oh, it's too high level for you, or there's some other gating mechanic. And I think that maybe we're not fully exploring that space as to you know how we can continue to let players have control while also. Um, letting things happen to them and letting things happen to them story-wise and not just mechanically. Uh, that's, that's a lot easier said than done, but things like fallout new Vegas, you, you kind of, you wake up and there's not an urgency there really. It's like, Oh, some guy shot me. Okay. Now what? And then you just start kind of exploring the world. You kind of exist in this world and you are uncovering things to do and bits and pieces of your backstory are starting to be slowly unveiled. I much prefer that type of storytelling in an open world game versus the fallout three or fallout four thing where it's like, I got to go find my dad. Or I got to go find my daughter, but first let yeah. me go and, and, and do all this other side quest stuff. And that really, I think kills the, the importance of the story and the gravity of, of the overall, where a yeah, that,
0: that's that heightened stakes that, that Kim was just talking about. Hey, Hey, so, so I guess maybe, you know, I, I've already said I kind of prefer the open-ended, open-world experience. And, and here's why. Because I think that video games, by their very nature, are an expression of uh, player agency and empowerment. And this idea of a linear narrative, to me, seems at, sort of at odds with what the promise of video games are. I mean, I guess, does that make sense just on its face? Like, it, it, am I making that point clearly?
2: Oh yeah. I think I, I understand I any disagreement that I have is purely based on my own the, the own, my own reasons and why the reason I play video games. For me, I'm playing to engage with a story and characters that are significant. Like if I have the ending spoiled for a game, a lot of the time I won't bother to finish it.
1: I agree with you on that point, Steve, because yes, like games should be, I think. About the gameplay, a lot of the time on paper, anyways. But when I go back and look at my favorite games of all time, they're almost 100% narrative, linear narrative experiences. Uh, and that might be because I did, you know, a lot of my formative gaming years when I was, you know, it was in the early '90s and and late '90s when games are really trying to do the movie thing. Um, games like Silent Hill, that's my favorite horror game of all time. Metal Gear Solid is my favorite like cinematic experience of all time. I think it is because we are not seeing the level of writing in open worlds as we do in those more focused experiences. I just don't think that the stories are as good. I think stories are important, but I don't know that they have to be linear all the time. It's just they're usually better when they are able to focus like that.
2: Yeah, I would, I would agree. And I think that the difference... Is that you can tell that story in a lot of different ways. And it doesn't have to necessarily feel as linear and as talky as, you know, as an Uncharted. Even though that's personally, I'm like, I love that. But I also, one of my favorite stories of recent years was Bloodborne.
1: I love it. And And I couldn't tell you any of the plot in Bloodborne or Dark Souls. Like, I just do not care about the story in those games, even though I'm a person who. Typically like stories in games, so I I don't know I maybe I just don't want, I don't appreciate the presentation as much.
2: Well, it's funny because I for me the reason that I love Bloodborne and Dark Souls is that the story is so compelling to me as because it's it's not presented very clearly at all. There's not a lot of talking. People just say weird stuff to you all the time, and you have to contextualize it later. Mm-hmm. But those worlds felt so fully formed to me, and I think if I was going to look at what I I hope the future of of narrative, of that kind of narrative and open world narrative is, I hope it leans more towards the Dark Souls and the Bloodborne, because well, it, that's this, where you can win.
1: There's this idea that I've been throwing around in my head this week about being a passive versus like an active audience. Uh, in in film, it would be you know in, in, as an a passive viewer of film. Everything is explained to you. All, all, every. There's no loose ends. It's like here's what this does, and here's why we're showing it to you. If we put it on screen, it's because we're going to bring it up probably later in the in the movie. If you're an active viewer, to me that would be something like the Alien movie franchise, maybe one of my favorite sci-fi worlds of all times, where. There are just things that exist. There's a lot of world building, like all the computers, everything like the, from like the mining. You never see Earth, but you can kind of envision it. So there's this whole story going on in the viewer's mind that's not really shown or explained on screen or through dialogue. And I feel like there's good examples of that in video games, like Bioshock series, for example. There's a ton of world building in those. Um, but it's it doesn't... I don't know if that still falls into the same category for me. I don't know if that satisfies, if that scratches the same itch as a, as a really strong linear narrative. I don't know. What what do you, how do you guys feel about how world building fits into this conversation? Well, I think
0: this is where Bloodborne is an excellent example uh, of what you're talking about in that. I think that for most players, the, the only motivation that a player really needs is to know like who the bad guy is and like, you know, what the weak point is on their body to shoot them. Obviously, there's a lot more that goes into this. I'm, I'm oversimplifying. But uh, th- I think the beauty of Bloodborne is that you don't have to like fully understand everything that's going on in that world. You just know that like, hey, sh- shit is bad right now. And you're you are the one who has to put a stop to it. And then there's this world that exists around you that if you really care to dive in and explore it and understand and learn what the story is, it's there for you. It's not like it's not obfuscated or anything like that. It's it's all made available for you. But it's through that like exploration and understanding. And it's not it's not fed to you.
2: I love it. It's my it's one of my favorite worlds, because I think it's it's some, it's one of my favorite pieces of just like Lovecraft media ever.
0: Oh, yeah, it's so beautiful. I, I love that. So I, have,
1: I haven't played Bloodborne. Do they do it differently than they do the story in the Dark Souls games?
2: I would say it's a bit tighter. Okay. It's a, it's a little bit more. Um, there's a, There are a couple more characters who you can follow directly and themes that you can immediately go like, oh, this is what happened to this character. This is how this goes. At this school, they study this. This is how the world ended. Things like that that's a little more clear. Like there's a little less digging to do, I think than dark souls and the pieces are, are fit closer together. You can kind of get a better picture when the puzzle's done.
1: And I, I like that idea. It's I think, you know, I'm going back to dark souls cause that's the one I'm familiar with. I think having to go so far out of the way outside of the game, maybe to piece that all together. Uh, cause I don't remember any of the characters names in that really, other than the bosses and, I know that people do like the story there's there's tons of people writing up and doing videos about like the the lore of, of the Dark Souls games. Um, but to me it's just so far removed from everything that happens in the gameplay and it's it's so intangible almost that maybe i'm I'm losing the balance between the two.
2: I think Dark Souls three and this is we're we're getting too granular here, I know, but with Dark Souls 3, if you've played Dark Souls one and you kind of did a little bit of the extra work, I feel like every, every second boss in Dark Souls three is like a big revelation. You're like, Oh my God, it's this guy. And so I think that that story for me felt really, really satisfying and all the realizations that I came to were really s- strong. And I think with co- so if the question comes back to world building and where it fits in narrative, I think if you do a really, really strong job of building this world and of creating all the the links and adding enough clues that the audience can choose to interact with, you can substitute that for a more traditional narrative and come back with still a very, very satisfying storytelling experience. Because there's a feeling that you get sometimes when you play that and you go, oh, I wonder why this sword has been left here. And there's no doubt in your mind that if you do Just that little bit of work, you'll know the answer to that.
1: Yeah, that's well put.
0: Now, I kind of want to circle back to what I had asked a little earlier, which is uh, if video games, I mean, sort of by their nature are about uh, player agency and empowerment, do you guys ever feel like constricted by a linear narrative? Is there ever a time when you're playing a game where you feel like, oh, I wish I could do something, uh, but... The game just won't let me behave in this way or act in this way or 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 do this thing. I think Kim, you, you may have already touched on this talking about uh, the last of us. So, so maybe I'll throw it to you, Jared. It, does does this idea of a linear narrative ever like bump you when you're playing a game?
1: Most of the time, no, because I go into like I, I go through phases where I'm like, yes, I want to play a game like uncharted. I just want I want cool action set pieces. And I want to be, you know, fed a story from the author's perspective. When I think it bumps into that idea is when it's done poorly and they're not giving you enough hints. There's a there's a thing that comes up in Far Cry 5, and I'm not going to spoil it too much here. But what happens is that the game tries to trick you into thinking that, like you have a choice here and you're like, okay, well, I am not going to do the thing that they want me to do because it's very clear that they want me to do this, but that's the only way to move the the story forward. So by giving me the choice, but then also not allowing me to continue, I think is just a really bad example of how to tell a story. Like, just don't give me that option.
2: Yeah. I'd rather not think that I can affect change and then have it suddenly taken from me because that's when you start, that creates a gap between you and the game immediately.
0: I think for me, the time when like linear games with linear narratives are really firing on all cylinders is where like me as the player, I am really feeling like exactly what the game uh, wants me to feel. And, and for, you know, for me as the player to think like, Hey, there's no other option for me in this situation than to, to do this one thing. And that's the one thing that the game wants me to do. Like when, when I'm in sync in that way, or, um, Oh, what's the term that always gets used in video game? In in film, it's suture, but I always forget what it is in video games. Oh, we've brought it up here before. Um, anyway, it'll come to me later. I'll sh- I'll just shout it out in the middle of when Jared's speaking later. When <laughs> <laughs> but it's she it's that idea that. of Perfect. like being completely in sync with with the game. So I think when a, when a, um, a linear narrative can actually sort of carry you along in that way that puts you in that same headspace as your your player character would be in. That's like when it's really working. Um, this, this is probably going to be a terrible example cause I'm pulling it from like a, uh, a puzzle game, but like the portal games do this all the time in that you'll like, you'll solve a puzzle and at the end of it, wonder if that was the way it was intended to be solved. Cause you'll feel like so clever, like, Hey, I, I came up with the solution to this thing. I wonder if that's like, I, I feel like I tricked the game, but no, that's exactly what the, what the developers, the designers wanted me to do. I think that I think that's a really a great feeling. And when a linear narrative can sort of give you that sensation, that's for me, that's when it's really working um, for all of the like shit talking I've been doing of linear narratives in this (laughs) this episode. Uh, Kim, are there any games that use linear narratives in interesting ways that maybe you hadn't considered until you had played that game?
2: I think um, I mean, Bioshock is a classic example, right? Where classic. Classic. Classic Bioshock. And you get to the end. I remember playing with a friend, actually. I'll tell this story. And I had already played through it. And when the plane lands in the water and you're, like, swimming to the wards of the lighthouse or whatever it is, she was like, okay, well, I'll just wait to be rescued at this lighthouse. (laughs) And I said, obviously, you have to do this. (laughs) And she goes down into the elevator, into, like, the bathysphere and is, like, looking at all the stuff. And she's like, well, why am I, like, why do I have to do these things? And it took everything in my power not to be like, that's actually the point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I like that she didn't even make it to like the first sort of inciting moment of that game. She was like, no, the lighthouse is good. I'm just going to chill here.
2: (laughs) Yeah. She was like, my odds of rescue are way higher if I just stay. I'm not going to go down this kind of mystery tunnel. (laughs) But I think that, you know, with that game, it made its linear narrative. A facet of the character the fact that everything we did was predetermined was all based around would you kindly yeah so we didn't have a choice to branch
0: yeah that's a that's a great example and i think we've mentioned bioshock on here before specifically for this reason although in a different context but that is a game that like fully embraced the fact that it had a linear narrative and made that linear made the the, even the idea of a linear narrative a part of the game. It's yes. It's, it was absolute genius. If you haven't played Bioshock, if, yeah. It, you know how long has Bioshock been out now? I've I've determined everything is fifteen years ago as I'm getting older. But
2: I would say that's exact eight years. I don't know. It's it's been a while.
0: It uh, if you haven't played it, definitely go play it. Even though we've just spoiled it for you, it, it, forget everything we just said. Then go play it.
2: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, sorry, everyone. No, no. But it, it's really good. No, at this point, it's
0: no one should be, we should be free to talk no, about it. It's been so long.
2: You could have a linear narrative and still have really a lot of depth of character. And I think that's also really relevant. Like to me, that is something like Night in the Woods or any of the Monkey Island games. Hmm. Where no, I can't choose the direction that I'm going. In. I'm always going to go towards my the end point. I'm going to, I'm going to work towards finding out what May, why May left college or what May is going through, or I'm going to get Guybrush to get the ring on Elaine's finger or off Elaine's finger again in Curse of Monkey Island. But <laughs> I can decide how often I talk to these characters. Mm-hmm. I can decide how deep I want to go into my interactions with them. And that is what enriches the story for me. So I'm good with a linear narrative, but... I don't want a shallow linear narrative. I want to be able to, to, if I choose to keep talking and that's, that's me just putting a lot of work on the people writing these games is I just want to be able to, to spend time with these, with these characters. Yeah.
1: Well, one of the things that the monkey Island games do really well, I think is that when you come into the world, you get the sense that these characters are known to the people in that world and you don't necessarily get an exposition for each character you, I always get the sense that these people existed in this world before I started playing it, and they'll continue to exist doing their own things after I stop playing it. And I kind of, in my mind, come up with you know a little backstory if it's not explicitly said, or I imagine like what those those characters were like and how they got to the place that they are when they're shown in the game. And I just think that that's done through really. I, th- I think you said it well. I think you said you know depth is the thing. Is that you you get that sense that there's more than one note to each of these uh, each of these characters that you encounter, even though it's not explicitly told.
0: And when I think exactly. when I think
1: about uh, Monkey Island, it, it, that's a game that is very
0: self aware. I'll say like it 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 wears the fact that it's a video game on its sleeve and pokes fun at that and and uh, takes advantage of that fact. I mean, one of the games that I think is is uses linear narrative in an interesting way is um, Max Payne One and Two, which were the the Max Payne games written by Sam Lake, who was actually the face of Max Payne in the uh, in the first game. But in those games, the story yeah. the story is presented to you as like comic book panels um, in between levels. And yes. Max Payne makes a lot of references to the fact that he he feels like he's being controlled by someone else. And he he makes reference to the fact that his life is playing out like a comic book. And he he he's drawing a lot of attention to the idea of storytelling um through playing this game. I, I mean, there's there's a lot of examples of this in the games as well. I mean, in Max Payne too, there's a, a level where you're walking through a like a fun house at an abandoned amusement park. And the level is literally called linear sequence of scares. And it's talking about how like Max Payne sort of only has one path in his life right now is to like get to the the conclusion of the story. And to do that, he has to walk through these corridors of, of scares essentially. Um, on the television sets in the, in the world, there's television shows that are sort of mirroring the, uh, the quest of Max Payne. There's one one particular one. It was called Address Unknown with the character John Mira, who is a mirror for for Max Payne, and is going Amazing. is going through a very similar thing. So, I mean, and and the examples go on and on and on in the, in the Max Payne universe, it, which is why I think like Sam Lake is one of the most genius video game writers out there. But it draws so much attention to the idea that like, look, this character only has one option in here and it's to like shoot his way to the top and you know and and conclude this this roller coaster ride so to speak you know i thought that that was a really cool way to tell a linear story
1: within a linear story if if that makes any sense which i'm sure it doesn't it does (laughs) no completely I like that idea of saying, you know, Max Payne doesn't have any other options. He has to continue down this path because that's where I mean, you were already set off on that path when you started the game. And that's, you know, going back to the Monkey Island thing, I, I always felt that Max Payne, he had a story before I started playing the game. He had a career that was not explicitly told to me, but I got the sense of whatever struggles he was going through. I think one of the ways that we can tell really good stories in open world games because let's face it open world games are going to be around forever telling very small stories in a very big space it might be like a good way to to put uh focus on a tight narrative experience while also creating creating an overarching world that that doesn't hasn't existed in the past
2: exactly that's exact that's exactly what i think i i feel because you take something like max Payne, right where he has he knows where he has to go and he has to be on this path that's where he must ultimately end but if you took that and put it in an open world where there were also other characters who were like hey max could you do this thing for me it would take so much away from his own journey
1: absolutely i agree because the,
2: he'd be like okay i'm going to spend half an hour driving this like whatever around and dropping it off here and and that wouldn't work So you'd have to lower those stakes and you'd have to say, okay, I just exist in this. Actually, you guys played dishonored, right?
1: No. Yes, I haven't. Um, I I played the first one.
2: Okay. Early spoiler then for dishonored is that what I really enjoyed about that was um, early on. You're saying it's, it's find Emily, right? It's track down this, this girl who you are sworn to and want to protect. So the fact that she's missing, that gives you an urgency in all of your actions and kind of dictates the way you feel. You might be more inclined to use shortcuts or to take people out to get to her, but you find her, I think it's in level three of eight or 10. You're very, very early when you locate her and then it becomes a political game. Yeah. And so that urgency is immediately gone. And, that experience to me then becomes, okay, I can take time because this is a game of chess now. I can revert to my stealth tactics. I can feel free to play the game the way the developers seem to want me to play it. When the stakes rose again, I had played the entire thing as, as a ghost until that final level where I, I killed pretty much everyone in it because nothing was gonna stop me from doing this.
1: And that's a good way of, of directing the player. And I think that that's one thing that The Witcher 3 did really well where there is kind of a, a sense of urgency to the main story but they allow Geralt the protagonist to run into roadblocks and dead ends and you see that you see that it's like okay well now what okay well i guess while i'm looking for clues uh maybe these people who need me to do other things can help me towards that objective and it, it it fit for the most part in in most of the situations. They carried that over into their DLCs. That's why their DLCs didn't feel removed from the main story was because he he just is a witcher in in this world that he lives in. And you, you allow them to make mistakes and to have to uncover things for themselves and you yes. know, thus the player is is also discovering those things and it feels more natural uh like you're saying with with dishonored where you can you know they kind of flip the script and all of a sudden the the big bad is is something much different
2: exactly and if you are going to give the player time to explore i think as you said with the witcher give the character time to explore
0: now why do you guys think that we've seen such a rise in the number of sort of open world or open-ended experiences that are available to players like i feel like over the last, I don't know, five ten years, there's been this like big push to having video games get bigger like the video game worlds to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think another part of that is this, the like Bethesdafication of video games, where like every choice has to have a, a branching path. Like, what, why has that been sort of a recent trend, like this move away from more of the 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 corridors and the the linear narratives?
1: Well, I think there's an overwhelming opinion that time spent hours per dollar I think is the is the phrase like people want to play an 80-hour game and if they spend 60 dollars they feel if they spent 80 hours in the game that that was worth it to them in my opinion especially early examples of this type of thing that's just all padding and uh, I do rag on Ubisoft a lot, a lot of early Ubisoft games, because it's like, yes, the game you can spend 80 hours in, but you're tracking down collectibles and it's not really advancing. It's not adding a, a ton of actual meaningful content. And 100%, yeah. we are slowly correcting that. I think that's because we're getting people who have been working in that space. They're, they're finding new ways to do that more interesting. But yeah, I think it, it, that is the thing with a lot of, you know, Gaming is a business, so if people see a game that's six hours long, they're like, well, I'm not going to spend $60 on that. Maybe I'll wait until it's a $10 game. For me personally, i rather play a tight six-hour experience, like something like Hellblade, than you know spending 60 hours doing things that I, I don't find valuable to me.
2: Same. I, I think that it's, it, you know, cynically it comes down to value for money, and what people perceive as value right now is size if you go into this world and say this is how big it is or you say like the sequel is the map is twice as large as the last one and we filled it with all these systemic things that you can that you can find as you explore yeah it's it's you're not really adding depth you're adding breadth
1: yeah, and you know, the thing was like, see that mountain in the background? You can go there. <laughs> and oh, uh, like, yeah. we, we don't hear that as often anymore, but I have heard that kind of recently as like last year's E3. I'm just like, uh, but why? Why would I want to do that? <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: that that was like, um, I think that peaked and maybe even peaked in its success with Grand Theft Auto V, right? It was, look how big this map is. Hey, you see that? You can drive to that. Yeah. And it's absolutely fun to drive to that. And the first thing I do when I open up any open world game, especially if there's cars or horses, is just hop on and and like put a dot on a map and try to go to it because I want to just kind of see the world that I live in. Mm -hmm. But the most disappointing thing is when I do that and nothing happens to me when I'm just like, okay, well, there's more people and trees and roads and mountains. The world is just there. It's not really providing any value. It's not I can't necessarily go into these buildings and see how somebody lives, um, which I'll go back is also for me a really strong point of dishonored is that they have taken a lot of time to make that world feel lived in
0: now do you, do you guys think that there's a future where linear stories are no longer a feature of video games? do you guys think like like a hundred years from now video games will be just big open experiences or do you think there will always be a place for the tight, concise narrative?
2: It's always going to be there
1: I, I would agree. I think that human nature wants purpose for anything. I think it's fun to have a sandbox. Like at GDC, we played Vacation Simulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a lot of fun. It's a VR game, and you, you're in it, and you you just kind of get to do whatever you want. There's a few objectives, but I wouldn't really say that there's a a strong story there. So, I'll play that for you know if I had the game, I'd play it for a couple of hours. And then I wouldn't really think about it ever again, to be honest. Yeah, probably. It's just, it's not meaningful. And I think that people like to be told stories. It's, that's just the human nature for, you know, centuries old nature is like, tell me a story. I don't think, I think that there's a place for both and there always will be.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to, we, we tell stories to each other no matter what, you know, at the end of the day, when you see your friends, you can play games, but you tell stories over them. You, you, you share what's happening to you, you care about characters very, very deeply. And I think that when franchise exists, it's because we care. I mean, you know, unless it's a PVP or something, that's purely based on that. A lot of these franchises are on the fact that we care about this world that they live in, we care about the characters that they are. And I, I go back to night in the woods a lot, or I, and that's something that I think will always exist and something that tells a beautiful story very elegantly. And I can't imagine a world in which we are tired of that. And I don't think we ever will. I think, you know, there's going to be maybe a greater disparity between things like VR titles and and everything else that are going to put us in a space. But we still want to know what happens to people.
0: So I, I haven't had a chance to really bring this up on this show ever, which is we've all heard about the the idea of the one console future. Right. This idea that, like, eventually it'll just boil down to one console and that's where you'll get all of your all of your games. But, it's called a computer. But <laughs> what I what people, the, what people haven't heard come out of my weird brain is the one video game future, where there's one video game that you put in your one console and every time you turn it on, it has it has like procedurally generated a a new story for you. Or asks you like what you know, what would you like to do today? I feel like in this discussion of like linear narratives, I think it would be really interesting to to have this like this algorithm, this AI that's that's able to do this to sort of forever expand this world that a, maybe a, a single character lives in, or give you, um you know, a new a new world, a new character every time you turn the game on, and uh, I I think that maybe that's our far distant video game future.
1: I gotta tell you, Steve, that that sounds like some Black Mirror shit oh, would happen I know. real oh quick. for sure yeah I'm not like something terrible.
2: The- I think the creators of Second Life would be like, nice. That's great. Yeah. We're definitely going to do that. Well,
0: and in 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 this like far flung future I'm describing, maybe the things that are are valuable are not necessarily the handcrafted story, but the. The ability to write an algorithm that can generate stories. You know what I mean? Like we take that next step of saying like rather than it being a a human being crafted this story. Instead, it's more about like the human being that can write the best algorithm for telling stories. I don't know. Again, See, I'd be, every, every I mean, time I say something I like this. I think
2: that is a very Black Mirror future. It is. And I, oh, yeah.
0: Every time I bring up I procedural generation, that. I'm pushing us one step closer to Skynet. <laughs> every time I bring it up on this show, I'm, oh, for advo- sure. I'm advocating for the Terminator future. <laughs> I know this.
2: <laughs> I don't think it's going to be, you know, I, I don't think that your idea is without merit. I think that there's absolutely going to be that. And I think, you know, we're working on it now. We're working on ways to start piecing together elements of story or character or dialogue that when you you know you play a new character and it randomizes things it's trying to give you a different experience every time and i think that you know right now we might have that for something like rust where you join and it gives you this character and then we might have it for something like personality traits you might have it for something that is you know desire or the items that you have with you or whatever it is right but i think a lot of the time we talk about the advancements Of technology, we discount this human ingenuity and creativity that is the foundation of every story we tell and everything that we are. And no matter what, if humans can tell a story that is their own and that is personal, they will find a way to do that. So I have no doubt that there will exist this massive ready player one style game space that everyone can take part in. But on the side, whether that's on your phone or the projected view screen that is the phone of the future, we're going to want to hear about someone doing something and experiencing something that we can relate to. And so I don't think we'll ever lose that.
1: I got you. Yeah, it's hard to imagine based on speculative things that don't exist yet, especially with algorithms, we've seen how poorly that can be, that can go Oh, yeah. In recent news media. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you look at Second Life and you just build this giant sandbox and give people all the creativity in the world, I think I think the theory is given, you know, enough people and enough time, everything will just turn into one big sex orgy. Like, that's what Second Life <laughs> was like. That's all yeah. I heard from Second Life. So it's like, I, oh, my God, like uh... you letting letting computers look at humanity and then giving us a, a experience based off of that might be kind of a terrible idea. I don't know.
2: Oh. I think it's just still, still empty, and you know, we always we just want to share. We empathy is that, and um, Brie Code, who's former Ubisoft as well, and now has True Love. She talks about this a lot. Is that empathy? I think is the way that we're going to to keep building our own utopia and our own our own games, and we have to study that more. But I think there's a there's a kind of a left brain way that we look at these things, and we're still falling into that trap of. Who are gamers and the demographics that we're looking at mm. for that? And you know, we're looking back on our history and going, "Oh well, you know, these games about killing and about violence and about just game pl- and that are completely gameplay focused are selling more." But I think that it's it's never it's never going to stop. It's, it's never going to fully stop the other kind of game. I gotcha. I, d- I just don't think that that exists.
0: Well, I guess this might be a good time to sort of wrap up this discussion. Uh, w- you know, what would you personally like to see in the future of of at least linear narratives, Kim? What 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 would be the ideal future of of like single story gameplay in your eyes?
2: I mean, personally, we're all, we're pretty much li- in terms of linear narrative. I'm delighted with the way things are right now. Oh, that's a perfectly great answer.
0: Um, I, I kind of like that. But I
2: also well, I also think that you know, if, if there's something I was going to see in the future, I'd like to see more gameplay based on less violence you know I, what i mean no, I I, i'd like that. to see we talk I'd like about to see that, that change here. and i think that you know we keep going back to like okay well what's the conflict or what's the combat and i think that's honestly just a thought pattern that's so ingrained in us that when we start to really step outside of it we're going to make some amazing things whether they're linear or open world
0: Oh yeah, we talk about that quite frequently, and I, I think Jared and I both believe that VR might be the savior in that space. Maybe I, I,
2: I hope so. I hope it doesn't just go to the dogs like real, real fast. Yeah,
0: Jared, how about you? What, what would you like to see in the future of linear narratives?
1: I hate, I hate bringing this up because I literally say it almost every episode. But like the types of stories that only video games can tell, I think it's it, there is a space for that, and it's so hard to do, and that's why I can only think of like Spec Ops: The Line and Red Dead Redemption. Where at the end of those experiences, I was like, I don't know how you would tell that in a, in a film. Spec Ops, the line, it is, I, when I put down that game, I like immediately like went to my wife who doesn't really care about video games. And I was like, this game was art. Let me talk to you about it for an hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> it was me just mostly working through the all, all the things that happened in that game. But I don't get that from a lot. Like I, there are a lot of narrative games I finish and I'm like, okay, that was, that wasn't terribly written and i think maybe because of i've spent so much time thinking about story academically coming from a film background and television it's there's the writing in games has a ways to go um but they don't have to try to be like movies they could definitely tell their own thing in their own way i don't know if i if i knew how to do that i would be a video game writer and i would probably be successful because it's 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 an extremely difficult no, thing I, to do and uh i mean i think i would like to see more people attempting it at least i
0: think i mean i think um all mediums sort of go through this right like you know the first movie camera they're like what do we do with this uh, i don't know the uh, let's let's electrocute an elephant Film this horse. <laughs> yeah let's yeah, like, oh let's yeah oh god yeah let's uh film a train coming directly towards the camera you know like and they, they go yeah. through growing pains and i think that video games in a lot of ways we still are in a state of infancy like there's there it, it still feels so early it does for for them having been out so long we're still really starting to come to terms with the idea of like how a how a, a narrative interacts with player agency and and where those things overlap and how to uh, you know guide a player through but still have them feel like they're in control of the situation because that's what you know that's what a video game is for and these are all like very you know high high level considerations that um that i i you know as a community as a you know as an industry hasn't quite been nailed down exactly yet so i think there is still room to room to grow in those regards
1: i'm i'm wondering between film and video games like when you look at the history of film it seems more tied to art than video games do where video games seem more tied to consumerism and i think that has been formative for the way that video game history has has played out. I, I don't I think that we are starting to turn the tide where people are seeing video games in a different light, but I, I just get the feeling when I look back at film history that the community, the people making them and the people viewing them were a much were interested in much different things than video games have been marketed toward traditional video game audiences. And I, I, I don't know if that's something that can change necessarily. But my hope is with more indie developers and better access to publishing uh resources that we will see people trying to make games in that way. Does that make sense? No, yeah. That's I, I, yeah, like, for I, sure. I just feel like the, the overall history of film had a different had a different I think I the genesis
2: the was very different. And right. I think um, you yeah, know, I mean it, it came from if it came from theater, it came from purely the arts. Whereas at the beginning of video games it had to be from The technical side of things it had to be story second especially initially Mm -hmm. right yeah and I and so I think that we are but we are coming into it and I think having tools like twine or ink is going to start helping people who otherwise might not even play video games be able to at least start to work in a branching narrative and then maybe give that to someone who knows a little bit about programming and then make something and it's just about you know we've gotten to a point now where I think those tools are becoming more readily available where we're inviting more voices into the conversation. And so I think we're going to to have a lot of that in the coming years.
0: Oh, for sure. I you know, and I think the indie space, uh, like you brought up Jared, is a, a really good example because I mean even in film, the indie space is where you see a lot of really original ideas come from. It's just in video games it's been so prohibitive on the technical side to make, you know, for someone with a really good idea to actually make a game and now that the tools are becoming Easier to access and easier to use. Um, we will start to see these people, you know, more more people enter the space with really original ideas for how to approach uh, video game making and storytelling and those and those kinds of things. Did we uh, did we get to everything we wanted to get to? I think so.
2: I really enjoyed the ending of Red Dead Redemption. By the way, that's a that's one of the best moments in games.
1: Oh, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we all three of us share that opinion. Yeah. yeah.
2: Get, Giving you a superpower for the entire time, and then letting you experience it when it fails, and that it's incredible. That's
1: mm-hmm.
0: perfect. Absolute magic. Go play that game. Uh, yeah. Before we move on to our listener feedback section, because the way my show notes are are laid out, uh, I just wanted to go back and the the quote Kim that uh, that I recited of yours was from your article "Small Stories, Big Game," and that was. Uh, Published on GameIndustry.biz. I just wanted to make sure that I get that out there, and and I'll be posting a link to that on our oh, on you. our Twitter, of course. And yeah, actually, for the the people, the the very astute listeners out there, they'll remember that we actually uh, quoted another article that you had written. I believe it was called "Now You See Me." Was that the name of it? Yes. Yes. yes.
2: I I because rem- I remember listening to that, and oh, I wanted to tag actually onto that to say actually I, I shouldn't because. That was a separate discussion and I'll start a whole new one if I do that. So, yeah, you also did that.
0: (laughs) Well, I hope I, I hope I represented the point well at the time that I brought it up, but uh, uh, I guess we'll save that for another episode. (laughs) Yeah. can't talk about it now. Okay. All right. Well um, then, yeah, if if you have any questions or comments about linear narratives or any of our previous topics, you can always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Jared, what do we have for today?
1: Uh, we're running a little long, but real quick, I wanted to bring up this comment from uh, Dylan on Facebook. He was talking about our last episode with AJ Glasser, where we talked about children's representation in video games. We we talked about how you, there's not a whole lot of violence portrayed against children in video games, in modern video games anyways. Uh, he brought up Fallout 2, where you could put a live grenade in your character's pocket because later in the story you would learn or a, a small child would come up and pickpocket you. And if you did that, the child would run away and blow up. Oh no.
0: Thought, oh wow. <laughs> Dylan. No, I
1: thought, <laughs> I thought that was, I thought that was pretty funny that, uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the fallout no, developers <laughs> decided that that was a, uh, a thing that you could do. And, uh, you know, we kind of already went over all of our, uh, opinions on the moral obligations of violence towards children in video games. But, it's interesting that that was a choice that they made.
0: Yeah, that someone discovered that that's a thing you can do in that game. Well, short and sweet. Was that it? That is it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for listener emails. Again, if you have any questions or comments or any feedback, you can always reach us at podcast at gbfeature.com. That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Kim Belair. Kim, thank you so much for for joining us. This has been a delight.
2: Oh, Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Where can people keep up with your work? Where can they find the things that you're doing?
2: Uh, I am at bagel of death on everything. So you can find me on especially Twitter and Instagram and just see what I'm up to. And hopefully in the coming months, I'll be able to talk a lot. And I will because I do uh, <laughs> I'll talk a lot about everything that I'm working on.
0: Oh, for sure. And and please let us know um, any updates about any of that stuff. We're happy to we'll be more than happy to tweet it out and talk about it here on the show and get the word out oh, there definitely. for definitely. Um, I'll be like,
2: hey, have me back. I have more to say.
0: Where can uh, where can people find your your podcast, your delightful podcast? I, I really uh, like the uh, Disney the uh, Disney villains episode, too, by the way. So,
2: oh, that, that was <laughs> you learn a lot about people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's at sexiest pod. But also, if you follow me at Bagel of Death, I'll, I'll probably broadcast that anytime. We're, but we're on uh, Stitcher, iTunes and SoundCloud.
0: Excellent. Go listen to the podcast. It's very funny. Uh, as a reminder, we, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. And this being our one-year anniversary, uh, please do. It would mean a lot to us to to get those numbers up.
1: Um, I don't know. Jared, What do you, do you think they should do it? I, I would agree that they should <laughs> I endorse it as well <laughs> I'm going I'm going to go with the controversial opinion that we, we like feedback we do, we, we love the feedback uh, so
0: yeah, please, please head over to iTunes give us a review, that, that really does help us out and will help us expand as we move into year number two uh, I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song you can check out his podcast, This Is Rad on iTunes I'm Stephen Bennett, that's at Steven underscore the gamer on Twitter and I'm at Jared Bruner We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.